0: you're listening to Megiddo Radio, Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megidoradio.com. That's megidoradio.com.
1: Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Thursday, the 7th of April, 2022. And... On today's program, we're going to be doing a critique of Matthew Vines. This was a talk that I downloaded from a few months ago. I've done a number of things on Matthew Vines over the years. I'm periodically, I kind of do different critiques on him because he is unfortunately so influential. He is um, one of the heads of the so-called Christian gay movement and one of the reasons why I'm covering this is because so many of the arguments that are being made by Matthew Vines and other people like that are made in the wider ch- are starting to be made in the wider church. And unfortunately, we might think that things are obvious, You know, we think the things, well, that doesn't really need to be covered. And that may be the case in so many areas. Now, if we are covering positive truth, that is the most important thing, being part of a local church, being instructed in what is the truth. But unfortunately, our discernment you could say is being eroded away in certain areas when we perhaps we don't hear preaching on certain parts of the bible perhaps and this is no, nothing to do with any agendas or anything like that it just may be perhaps certain areas don't get touched upon and all you hear about it is from the other side and you don't really realize that you're hearing from the other side because you get influenced so much by movies, by TV, by radio, and every, everything, else, everything else like that. So we've got to be really instructed in the whole counsel of God. And how do we do that? Well, we need to be in our Bibles, all of it, reading all of Scripture. But coming to Scripture and asking God on our knees, what are the answers to these things? And not... Simply making up our mind, either based on programs like this or listening to YouTube videos or whatever the case may be. But hopefully, this will be it'll guide you in the right direction. So, we're going to play this, we're going to try and get through it as quickly as possible. Again, I've done programs before Matthew Vines, so this is going to be this isn't the first time I've covered him. And um, if you want more, more of an introductory program, I'll probably put it in the show notes in megiddaradio.com. This is not going to be on youtube or anything like that i plan to do another podcast perhaps before the end of april on another individual somewhat related to this um a person who is an ordained minister at least claims to be an ordained minister and um in a methodist church and yeah um One of the problems is there's so much stuff that kind of goes out there but vines is very very influential and he speaks to google he speaks to all sorts of people and um it's very very popular and we've got we've you know unfortunately we've got to deal with it and we've got to look at it so this is a talk called yesterday today forever the heart of christianity and again it was from a few months ago from the reformation project let's play
0: Uh, Good morning, everybody, and thank you again for taking the time and making the trip, or making the trip on your computer, to be with us here this weekend. It's been almost 10 years now since I gave my first public talk about the Bible and same-sex relationships at a church in my hometown of...
1: Just to let you know, this is from a conference. It's at the background there, Reconcile and Reform Conference. Um that they were running. And again, they're constantly putting on these conferences. They are going around, they're teaching in various different places. And this kind of teaching is unfortunately going to, it's going to grow and it, it is influential. And I, I think far more than we realize.
0: Talk about the Bible and same-sex relationships at a church in my hometown of Wichita, Kansas. Since then, a lot has changed, both good and bad. So today I'd like to take a step back to take stock of where the LGBTQ conversation in the church is at. Some significant challenges that we face and how we can most faithfully help to steward this conversation in a way that builds up the church rather than undermines it. Ultimately, this conversation isn't just about sexual orientation and gender identity, as important as those things are. It isn't even just about LGBTQ people and our lives and dignity, although it certainly isn't about anything less than that.
1: Um, yeah, it, it, somewhat I would agree with that. It's mainly about the authority of the Bible. It's the same with, if you accept female elders in your church, it's an issue primarily of the authority of the scriptures. Um, issues, when they're that clear, and you can't find a single positive example in the scriptures of anything homosexual, or anything to do with anything contrary to nature, We've been given the model that God has ordained, the LGBT community, the only thing that really ties them all together in all the various perversions that have been joined together, it really is this, the rejection of God's created order. So you have the established order by God as revealed in his word and also in in nature. And then you have a movement that is affirming that, well, God's okay with what he's condemned. And their their main argument is basically that the the Bible doesn't say anything about this. But we'll continue.
0: But part of what makes this such a challenging and often anxiety-inducing conversation, especially for many non-affirming Christians, is that... It's also about truth, about morality, about what the Bible teaches, and about what it means to follow Jesus.
1: Yeah, even more than that, it's about having the Bible actually be your authority rather than torturing the data to make it say whatever you want it to say.
0: Sometimes for those of us who are affirming and who see on a daily basis...
1: And this language, affirming, is basically... Professing Christian churches, they claim to be Christian, they're not. um, Affirming that you can be a homosexual and be a Christian. Which, to that I would say, is as consistent as being a drunk and being a Christian. Consistent as being, I don't know, a wife beater and being a Christian. It's a sin and people can fall into sin, of course, we are sinners, but they are, there's a lifestyle, and by the way, homosexuality is not the only lifestyle that would put a neon lights that you deny the scriptures, but it's one of many. But if there is a lifestyle that one is leading, that is a firm denial uh, that they follow the Bible, well, we should not believe. That they don't have a credible profession of faith at that point, and they should be called to repentance, again, it's the same thing if somebody's going out getting drunk at the weekend and coming in to church on a Sunday, they're not living a life consistent with the profession of faith. We're not looking for perfection here for people joining churches and all this kind of thing. But the Bible's very clear on this issue.
0: Horrible toll that non-affirming theology takes on so many LGBTQ people. It can be difficult to extend patience and grace to those in the church who don't also see this topic.
1: The toll, you'd you'd have to say, is it not the toll of their conscience before God, realizing that they've broken God's law? And are going after things that are not natural.
0: As an urgent matter of justice, and all too often even of life and death. When we share stories of the heartbreaking pain and suffering... Caused by non-affirming teachings, it can be easy to assume that anyone who isn't moved to reconsider their beliefs... What's the excuse for the,
1: for the drunk? What's the excuse for the person who leaves his wife and commits adultery? Do we blame people who don't accept a, a, adulterous relationships? I mean, it's a ridiculous form of logic. You're blaming sin based upon that some people don't accept your sin. And you're blaming their misery in that sin, that the Bible tells you you will be miserable in, on people who don't accept your sin. This is the argument been put forward, and, well, it's it's emotional manipulation. It is guilt-tripping the other side. Hey, you don't, you don't want to be the cause of somebody feeling depressed, do you? You don't want to be the cause of somebody's decline in mental health. Nobody wants to be, you know, accused of that in this day and age. But if you tell somebody, say if you go to the doctor's office and you are in serious trouble, well, if somebody tell, if the doctor tells you you have a serious condition and you're in trouble or whatever the case like that, that's going to ruin your day. But you need to be told the truth and the truth isn't going to be always pleasant to hear.
0: As a result, must just be a hard-hearted person, if not outright hateful and bigoted. And to be fair, anti-LGBTQ prejudice and even hatred is all too real, both within and outside of the church. Even more common is an active animus or even hard-heartedness, but simply a failure of empathy, an unwillingness to put oneself in the shoes of a gay, bisexual, or transgender person, and truly grapple with the impact of a non-affirming theological position on their lives.
1: Okay, I used to, what was my particular major sin before I got saved? I was a heavy drinker. I think we would say, put yourself in the shoes of a drunk, and, and, and play, you know, and Think of the the mental anguish caused by somebody who doesn't accept that somebody wants to get drunk all the time. Change the sin that they're saying to put your feet in in the shoes of that person. Now, I'm not saying that you should be harsh or cold about it, but for the grace of God, we we would all be on our way to hell. We would all, none of us deserve the least of God's mercies. Not one of us. But would you argue this way with any other sin? What about somebody who wants to have multiple wives, and you're causing suffering in the person if you don't accept them for who they are? And by the way, that that formal logic is, you know, it's used by other people. I haven't heard it used yet. It might be used by Matthew Vines. I'm not sure. I haven't listened to everything he's ever said, but this logic can be applied to anything. What What if you apply it to bestiality or pedophilia? You see, it's all about in the in the, in the introduction here the harm done by not giving the thumbs up to something that the Bible calls sin. And by not giving the thumbs up and embracing it and all that, you cause harm. By not supporting sin, you're damaging people. So sin is a good thing for people according to this theology of this so-called gay Christian movement. By the way, it's not the only thing clearly contrary to the word of God that they embrace because the movement at its core tosses aside the authority of the word of God. So everything from female ministers, preachers, transgender, anything under that umbrella, anything goes. with such
0: a hermeneutic. The crushing burdens and the double standards that it places on their shoulders, but while- What double standards? Double
1: standards? Yeah, if somebody was being hypocritical, you might have an argument. The, the law will condemn us all. The, the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. But the law shows us our deficiency. And it, it, in a way, it should crush us and realize that we can't do that. And we need Christ. And if you are a professing Christian and you were living this lifestyle, it, it, when you look at the scriptures and we it should tell you you're in trouble and you're on
0: the wide road to destruction. Sorts of human failings are certainly a significant factor behind opposition to LGBTQ inclusion in the church. They aren't the full picture. For many non-affirming Christians even once the grown in awareness and compassion for the suffering of lgbtq people in the church they continue to have doubts and concerns about re-
1: to care about the suffering and you should by the way we should care about the suffering they're suffering because of their sin primarily because of their sin if somebody's bullying somebody in a, in a school because of this that, that's horrible and that's wrong okay but most of their depression and everything else is caused by their sin. And if everybody in society embraced them and, and supported them, you know what would happen? They'd get worse. Because their sin is miserable and enslaving, and sin is the cruelest taskmaster we'll
0: ever serve. Considering their theology, for reasons that we can and should take seriously, and that if we do, we can help to address In my experience, the primary concern of most non-affirming Christians in this conversation has long been about the authority of the Bible. In the church that I grew up in, the only LGBTQ-affirming Christians that most people had ever even heard of came to their conclusions by, in one way or another, taking a lower view of the Bible's authority. Sure, Paul may have said that, people heard from theological progressives in our denomination, Paul was just a man of his times. And on this, Well, there's a reason for that. He was wrong. Or, yes, some would say, the Bible is inspired in a very general sense. But parts of it are less inspired. And the parts about sexuality are large. Yeah, but you're surrounded by people, you know, with your views who have those views. There's a reason birds of a feather, well, flock together. Outdated and irrelevant now. When that's the way that this conversation is framed, there really is no conversation. From the standpoint of non-affirming Christians, this then becomes no longer about how we interpret scripture, but about whether we are even committed to scripture as our authority over and above our experience.
1: Sometimes you don't need to interpret various passages. If, if a passage says the sky is blue, well, what does blue mean there? And Blue in early cultures means, again, this is what we're arguing about there's never been a positive case to be heard. The, the, the whole premise of the Reformation project run by Matthew Vines and a few others is this. The, the passages commonly used to go against homosexuality, they're not really talking about monogamous relationships, and there wasn't any of that loving relationships, monogamous homosexual relationships back in in the first century, which is complete nonsense but just we'll give them that premise so they're basically saying well the, what the bible says about one subject just happens to be negative all the way through but it just doesn't talk about what we're talking about at all so it, it has nothing to say on that just interesting to to note that there's nothing positive to say in it according to this view either where You basically have to fill in the blanks and be highly cultural about something that was established
0: at creation before the fall. When it comes to shaping our beliefs about truth and morality. If we aren't, then changing our minds about LGBTQ inclusion will almost inevitably erode our faith foundations and call into question other much more central parts of our faith.
1: There's a reason, and kind of making the point that I made earlier. This is essentially an issue about the fun, uh, the, the word of God as as your authority. If I go to a church, I live in Northern Ireland, and if I hear that there's a, uh, a minister who's a woman, well, I'm going to presume that that is a church that, Either you know has a very low opinion, or or has no opinion of the authority of the word of God. And there's a good chance. There's a good chance that it's not to say everybody's lost in that building, but probably most don't care. And it won't be too long before they're also embracing this movement because. It's essentially an issue about the authority of the word of God. Faithful Christians can disagree in certain things. Oh yeah, there's things we disagree on. This isn't one of them. Any of the letters represented and and realize it's not just about sexual attraction they're talking about. They're also talking about uh, the transgender movement. That's T and the LGBT. And they basically say that, well, you can change your gender or whatever. That's a much harder argument to make because you are basically denying that God made the male and female in creation. This is a fundamental rejection of the authority of the scriptures. They hone in on the homosexual argument a bit more because that's probably an, quote-unquote, easier argument to make because it gets even more ridiculous. However... According to this movement, you're determined by your feelings. Not by objective truth.
0: I have always taken that concern seriously. And that's why my case from the beginning has been not just that Christians should affirm same-sex relationships and transgender people. More specifically, my argument has been that Christians can and should become affirming while continuing to affirm and uphold the authority of the Bible as the word of God. I've made that case in detail over the years, and I remain convinced that it is sound.
1: Affirming something that the Bible clearly condemns while affirming the Bible, yeah. Based on the
0: biblical texts themselves. That said, though, it's one thing to come to that conclusion intellectually and theologically, but it's another to see that conclusion actually lived out or not lived out in a community. And this is where we come to one of the major current challenges in this conversation. Even if something is true, if the community that's around us doesn't believe that it's true, our confidence in it can be undermined. The sad irony here. Is that the slippery slope of fear? Yeah, yeah, look, here's the
1: thing. The LGBT community hates the word of God. Hates biblical standards, hates biblical morality, hates the traditional family, hates the biblical family. Hates any vestige or of the image of God. And again, what? unites this entire movement together.
0: ...of many non-affirming Christians can sometimes become a self-fulfilling prophecy. The fear that becoming affirming will lead to a broader unraveling of one's Christian faith is itself a major factor behind the severity of many non-affirming churches' responses when someone comes out or when someone simply changes their mind and becomes affirming. And the intensity of that sort of rejection and ostracism can itself be deeply damaging to people's faith, even when becoming affirming wasn't. Consequently, if someone comes out, is kicked out by their church, and then loses their faith, the church can easily misdiagnose the problem by assuming that becoming... Well, they didn't lose their faith, they
1: showed more, and this won't be an isolated incident, once you get to this point, now you you may be a new Christian and may not know, that's a different issue. But if you have been, you know, you're raised in a Christian home, we you know that these things are wrong. We know that these things are wrong through various different things, not just from the Word of God, but also from nature. When you grow in your callousness and your hard heartedness towards this, well, it's not it's not gonna be the only thing. This is a particularly serious sin. Clearly, clearly condemned in the Word of God. You wonder what doctrines. It's like saying, okay, this argument is bizarre somebody saying, you can believe that the Bible has errors in it, yet believing that the Bible is infallible. You can believe that the Bible has nothing to say in this issue, yet it is our authority and we believe it. The problem is, once you take so much out of it, what's left? What, what do you actually believe? Where, which parts do you actually agree with it? Are there any parts left once the LGBT has gotten its metaphorical scissors into the pages and cut out the parts that they don't agree with? Imagine somebody saying, you know, okay, the Bible's clearly against drunkenness. And then you say, well, that's not, that's, you know... that's not talking about, you know, happy drunkenness. That's talking about when drunkenness just goes too far and you become a full-blown alcoholic and then you create some arbitrary number. And, you know, when Paul was around then, you know, th- it, wine was a different percentage. And yeah, we get kind of quite ridiculous quite quickly, wouldn't it? everything unravels, if you apply this consistently in other areas.
0: ...affirming was what led to their loss of faith, when in reality the real driving force behind that was the subsequent rejection they experienced from other Christians. This misdiagnosis can then create a vicious cycle in which churches double down on the primary thing that's fueling the problem they're trying to avoid. And that response tends to drive more of a wedge between people and their faith, leading many LGBTQ Christians, as well as allies who've experienced rejection after becoming affirming, to feel spiritually homeless. This homelessness is often experienced...
1: (laughs) Because they are spiritually homeless. They've always been spiritually homeless, by the way. They may have been a a member of a visible church, but they're manifesting evidence that they were never born again in the first place.
0: At least in part, as a crisis of authority. If my church and its leadership were wrong about this, what else... You'll
1: know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits.
0: might they have been wrong about? If it isn't true that same-sex relationships are sinful... What else that I've been taught was true isn't, and who can I look to as a guide to help me figure that out? What's more, all of those questions don't take place in a vacuum. That experience of alienation is difficult to undergo at any time, but it's been even harder in the last few years, as so many of us who've grown up in the evangelical church have had additional reasons to lose confidence. What what was
1: the case before the sexual revolution? even up until a couple of decades ago, homosexuality was illegal. And clearly seen as a danger to, well, society. And moral fabric. And prior to the sexual revolution, it was seen as disordered behavior. And it took somebody like Alfred Kinsey, father of the sexual revolution, man himself who was a sexual deviant and, and a pervert. It took him going to the marginalized prison population, things like that, and also abuse of many people as well. This is in his own books. It took him and others working for him, taking that deviant population, sexual predators, and other people, and making it seem like that is the norm in society. Now that that should not determine anything, by the way, but that's that's what will happen. And now we're told, oh well, not only is the norm in society, was well, across the board. And the normalization of these of this umbrella of sins is making us as a society more antagonistic towards the word of God as a society. Never mind within the church. There's no debate to be had. You're homeless because of apostasy. You've left the visible church.
0: And many of those who played a formative role in nurturing our faith. Flagrant hypocrisy and the pursuit of power at seemingly any cost. Look, look, uh, th- th- this whole ar- argument of somebody who played a
1: formative role. Look, if you're born again and believing in the spirit of God, you're never going to. You might have struggles, you might backslide, you might all sorts of things, but you're not going to abandon the faith. I mean, look, one of the first people to ever bring me to church was a raging hypocrite and lived a double life. But my faith wasn't built on that person. Praise God, it was based upon the word of God. And, uh... If your, if your faith falls apart because of the failings of one person, then you've got an idol. And there's danger there because sometimes people can be enamored with godly preachers even sometimes and think that they're fantastic, but they may not even be born again. There's a famous story, I don't know where I heard this story, but it was George Whitfield. Somebody, a, a drunk man came up to him and, and, and said Mr. Whitfield uh, uh, I love your preaching and he, he was drunk at the time and I think Whitfield said to him y- you know you may love I can't remember the exact words he said you may love my preacher but you certainly do not love Christ and in that story which I'm not remembering particularly brilliantly the point was whitfield recognized that the man drunk didn't love what he was preaching you mean i've loved the way he was describing it delivering it he may have even had some kind of a an admiration that the fact that the person was moral or whatever the case may be but didn't have a love for christ himself And if your faith is founded on the Word of God, and you're born again in the Spirit of God, you'll ultimately never completely abandon the faith. You may backslide. I'm not saying you won't backslide. I'm not saying that you won't fall into horrible sins. You can fall into horrible sins as a genuine believer. You know, people getting casual or whatever about this. but you're not going to finally fall away. If you do fall away, you, you were never born again in the first place. They went out from us, for they were not all of us.
0: Have damaged the church's witness and felt like a betrayal for many of us who've watched as the Jesus we invited into our hearts as children has too often been reduced to a team mascot in our increasingly ugly and mean-spirited culture wars.
1: Look, on either side of the culture wars, there's not the Jesus of the scriptures. On either side. And largely, the culture wars have been instigated by the left. Sure, maybe elements on the, on the right are counter and they're doing it in a very unwholesome way at times, whatever the case may be. But the culture wars were initiated by the left. Let's not pretend that it anything else.
0: The people who introduced me to Jesus can live in such contradictory ways to the values they once taught me. It's natural for many to ask, how much of this was ever true in the first place? How much of what I was taught about Christianity is actually real? And how much of it should I still believe? The term that's now widely used.
1: Or another question, ask yourself, did you believe any of it in the first place? Or did you have a false view of what it meant? Or are you just changing and you want everybody to go along with what you're now believing? And when everybody doesn't go along with it, they are unloving bigots and they're not as accepting and loving as they claimed. But if they did t- sell you a Christianity of unlimited you know, love of anything you do, that's not Christianity. It's not. Should we have compassion and love for those people? Yeah, we should, calling them to repent.
0: Those who are going through this sort of extensive questioning of what they'd once been taught about their faith is deconstruction. For many of us, this is an unavoidable process once we come to believe that any significant aspect of the theology and beliefs that we were taught growing up isn't true. That could be about same-sex relationships,
1: the deconstruction began long before. If you look at most people, embrace LGBT stuff, it wasn't the first thing that they embraced that that said "Mm, their, their faith is in trouble. Their faith was always in trouble. You'll know them by their fruits.
0: But it could also be about the role of women in the church, about questions of science, or about whether Christians all need to vote for the same political party. But whatever the impetus I don't really understand
1: this i I get why people oh you know yeah you want to vote for a party that killed babies. I'm interested to see, I've never noticed these groups ever condemn the killing of the unborn in the womb i I, I haven't heard of it anyway maybe I missed something here um now I don't I, I think the lesser of two evils is still evil. And as a Covenanter, as a Reformed Presbyterian, I would not vote for any of any of the major parties, either here in Northern Ireland or anywhere in the United Kingdom, or if I was living in the United States, it would be the same thing. But be it as it may, there, there is a moral choice and a moral decision when it comes to making those decisions. So there's going to, you know, and, and some people, and I understand it. I get it. I'm not trying to argue with anybody here. I I, can, I get it. But you know, you're saying, well, one one party is against for killing of the unborn, the other one's against it. Well, that makes my choice a little, you know, pretty easy now. Okay, I get that. But I don't see why the the the, the Republicans aren't great, but the Democrats. Whoa, boy. <laughs> uh, and and it's the same over here. I can kind of see why somebody might, you know, say in England, vote for the Conservatives, the Tory party. But, well, I don't even know how much of a pro-life witness there is anywhere in the United Kingdom anymore. There's very little of it. But you can see why, at least in that issue, to say, you know what, what's the difference between the two? Well, that's a major issue. And it is a major issue, but I would argue it's not the only issue in the Word of God.
0: It's not the only part of the law of God we are to be concerned about. For it, or the term that's used to describe it. This process is one that millions of people today, and especially millions of younger people in the church, have gone through or are going through. And that reality, and how widespread it is, can provoke different responses, including responses that I think err in two different directions.
1: Many young people are going through this because... Humanly speaking, if anybody's born again by the Spirit of God, it's because of God. It's because of his grace. But humanly speaking, it's because within the church, very few have been taught consistently. And there's been a massive laziness in catechizing and teaching the next generation. And there's been... And there's a massive... Many young people have left the church. Because in many places, even the more moral homes, crisis is an afterthought. Their careers, having nice big houses and all sorts of other things, are the main things that that are being taught to their kids. And when Christ is the afterthought in the home, why would God bless that? And that's why you get
0: questions such such as this, and a massive turn away. On the one hand, seeing deconstruction lead to a loss of faith for many can lead to a fearful or condemning response from some in the church who would prefer to interpret this phenomenon as merely people falling away from the faith because of the attractions of sin and cultural relevance in an increasingly secular and post-Christian society. But that sort of perspective overlooks the many real problems in the church that are pushing people away. Rethinking beliefs and attitudes that aren't true or that aren't faithful to Jesus and to scripture isn't a bad thing. It's a healthy and necessary thing, and it can help to make the church better. But at the same time, just as deconstruction shouldn't be uncritically dismissed or condemned, it also isn't something that should be uncritically praised regardless of what beliefs someone is deconstructing or what measuring stick they're using to judge what's true and what's not in the process. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10:23, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do everything, but not everything is constructive. If decon
1: Well, <laughs> I have the right to do what exactly? Um, and uh, the Bible doesn't say anything if you want to use by this form of argumentation, you know, about doing drugs. But we clearly know, <laughs> by the abuse of our health and other things like that, and that it is wrong and sinful. By biblical principles, we can apply it to other areas. Because the, the Ten Commandments are a summarization of the law of God. To summarize down the law of God. And, it, and it's summarized down even further to love your neighbor as yourself in the second table of the law and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first table of the law. The next program I hope to do is going to be another catechism, quite a larger catechism, hopefully in a few days, probably early next week, um,
0: covering the first table of the law in more detail. Instruction is pursued in an overly reactive way then it can easily lead to a whiplash-inducing rush to embrace the opposite of whatever beliefs someone started with. And that almost inevitably involves sweeping away some beliefs that are good and true, along with those that are flawed. The proverbial baby... How do you define that?
1: See, based upon his hermeneutic, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, but, well, then what standard then determines... What is good and what is not? Well, whatever society says, really.
0: ...with the bathwater. And even when someone seeks to maintain a Christian identity, this highly reactive approach is usually unsustainable. The celibate gay Catholic writer Eve Tushnet has written of the insufficiency of what she calls a vocation of no when it comes to church teaching for gay people. So let's go back over this again, what he said there. And even when someone seeks to maintain a Christian identity, this highly reactive approach is usually unsustainable. The celibate gay Catholic writer Eve Tushnet has written... The celibate gay Catholic writer. Roman Catholic?
1: Roman Catholicism, which has since the Reformation declared that the gospel, by grace alone through faith alone, is anathema. If you look up the succession on the um, canons on justification, you'll see anathemas to that effect. You see, anybody's a Christian, then.
0: Roman Catholicism has another gospel, but... see, ...of what she calls a vocation of no, when it comes to church teaching for gay people. You can't have a vocation of not gay marrying and not having sex, she said. You can't have a vocation... Of no. That principle is just as true for our faith as it is for how we live our lives. If all that someone has clarity on anymore is the things that they don't believe, or the things that more conservative Christians believe, say, or do that they oppose, then they don't actually have anything firm to stand on. Identifying things that are wrong is important. In fact, it's critical. But there are real shortcomings to merely naming the areas where many conservative Christians are wrong, declaring the opposite positions on those issues, and then reorienting one's faith identity in order to create as much distance as possible from those problems.
1: Okay, so that's not the way we, at least on church history, and what is marriage? Well, marriage is... Positively, between one man and one woman for life. That eliminates other possibilities. All possibilities. That could be claimed to be marriage. You see, what has happened in the last while is people want to redefine marriage. or what is natural according to nature, and according to God's word. It's not like we're listing out all the negatives. Wouldn't be helpful, no. But when you say this is what it is, well, anything outside of that is condemned,
0: and is not what is claimed to be by the world. By, for instance, trading out the label conservative Christian for progressive Christian. If our identity is based principally or even significantly on the things that we don't believe, then over time, it will crumble.
1: Yeah, but what do you believe? I mean, the things that hold the Reformation Project together is that they think that anything within the LGBT moniker is fine. What do they actually believe? I mean, pot, kettle, black,
0: you know, on massive. A foundation not of sand, but of rock. We need to identify what is right and true in Christianity, not just what is wrong. And as Christians today, we are the beneficiaries of a 2,000-year-old faith. Church tradition is not infallible, of course.
1: N- it's not, well, I, I wouldn't be nitpicking here, but it's, our faith is a lot older than that. Many thousands of years old. Old Testament, same religion. The Psalms pointing towards the same Christ. Um, same Savior in Genesis three 3.15. The seated woman crushing the head of the serpent. That is Christ. Christ, the anointed one, uh, spoken about in Psalm 2. So,
0: yeah, just to point that out. But it gives us a rich well of resources to draw from when we are undergoing shifts in our faith. We don't have to simply swing from side to side, running as far in the opposite direction as possible. We can instead press deeper.
1: He's desperate for people to not abandon the faith because if they just kind of embrace what he says, well, guess what? That They happen to walk away from the faith entirely, and we don't want that to happen in droves because people get might like, get nervous. The only way that the Reformation Project is ever going to be successful in what they're seeking to do is that people stay within the the church and not just leave in mass. They want to change the church from within. That's really their, their main aim. And you know i'm preaching on nehemiah chapter and nehemiah chapter 5 and nehemiah chapter 6 there's plots by the wicked to undermine the work and to distract from the work and to you know spread rumors about the work and yeah nothing new under the sun
0: to the roots of our faith, to find solid anchors to hold on to in the midst of change. One of the most important anchors in all of the Bible is found in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This chapter is famous for Paul's impassioned argument about the literal, about the literal physical reality of Christ's resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, he wrote in verse 14, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. We'll come back to this part of the chapter, but it's before that, specifically verses 3 through 5, that's arguably the most significant part of this entire letter. Here, Paul explicitly describes what the gospel, the good news, In 1 Corinthians 15 1 through 5, he says,
1: Okay, I just muted myself there. <laughs> okay, so he says, now, brothers and sisters, I don't know what translation he's got. Uh, I'm just going to go with the one he has. He's using, uh, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your step. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. And what, what was the word that Paul had preached to them? uh he said things like this first corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor sodomites by the way those last two words arsecoites the last one and um oh it's got out of my head, uh basically catamites or uh, the last two words they're translated in a number of different ways at the end of verse nine but they're both referring to homosexuals. The ESV even kind of combines the two together because they're, you know, uh, effeminate. The old, the old King James will say, and i trying to remember, abuse themselves and mankind. Both of themselves, both of those Greek terms, the more well-known one is arsenicoites, which literally means men better, you know, as it is, in, I think, in the NIV. But, be not deceived. This is the word, this is the gospel. If you hold firmly to the word, I preach to you. In the very same letter, he says this, chapters before, do not be deceived. If you live a life that is completely contradictory to what you profess, do not be deceived, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That Christ. And it's not that you're saved by your works, it is an evidence that you were never born again in the first place, that you have not, to quote the, 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 the passage he has on screen here at the Reconcile and Reform Conference, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, you're not holding firmly to the word. You're not holding firmly to the word. You are your own authority. You are obstinate. You are you have stiffened your neck against listening to the word of God. You are just like the Judea, the Jews before the destruction of Jerusalem and, and, you know, in places like Ezekiel, where they thought it was okay to have idols and to worship other gods. They thought that was
0: fine. So. for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to cephas and then to the twelve so the gospel paul says here is simply this that jesus died for our sins that he was raised from the dead for whose sins that he was seen by many people after his resurrection and so we have good reason to believe that he really was resurrected and that all of this took place in accordance with the scriptures. This passage from 1 Corinthians 15 takes on even greater weight because there is wide agreement among biblical scholars across the ideological spectrum that verses 3 through 5 were not original to Paul, but were instead a very early oral creed among followers of Jesus that Paul was quoting, and a creed that can be dated to within just a few years of Jesus's death.
1: Hopefully, I don't need to point out that that's nonsense, but I digress.
0: In his book, How Jesus Became God, Bart Ehrman, an agnostic biblical scholar, has written of these verses that, quote, it is believed far and wide among New Testament specialists that Paul is indicating that this is a tradition already widespread in the Christian church, handed over to him by Christian teachers, possibly even the earlier apostles themselves. Ehrman writes that it is a very tightly formulated creedal statement that is brilliantly structured. That formulaic structure can be more clearly seen when the component parts of the verses are displayed in parallel. That Christ died for our sins is the opening statement of faith, followed by scripture, according to the scriptures.
1: Yeah, um... You may believe that Christ died for your sins, and you may believe that, how to put this, you may think you're born again, you may think you're a Christian, you may think that Christ died for you. Uh but if you're still serving sin you are still in your sin if you are still a slave to sin which is what first corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11 talks about those who are still slaves of sin serve sin and don't serve Christ now none of us are perfect of course and those born again truly believe in Christ and we believe that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. But, see, here's the thing. According to the scriptures, we believe what the scriptures say. We believe what they say about Christ. We believe what they say about all sorts of things. This movement doesn't believe what the scriptures say. So it's an empty statement where he can pick and choose.
0: ...by evidence for the claim, that he was buried. Then, that he was raised on the third day is the parallel statement of faith, followed by another appeal to Scripture, according to the Scriptures, followed by evidence for that claim, that he was seen by Cephas, referring to Peter, and then by the Twelve. As N.T. Wright has written in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, This is the kind of foundation story with which a community is not at liberty to tamper. It was probably formulated within the first two or three years after Easter itself, since it was already in formulaic form when Paul...
1: You may say that you believe something. You can say, right, I love... If you say I love God, okay, well, let's take another relationship. If you say I love my wife, right, well, if... You say you love your wife, but you are not faithful to your wife. Well, that statement doesn't really mean too much. And actually, what if you're abusive towards your wife? Or what if you're ignoring your wife? Or what if. On, on, on. Well, would we believe that statement of love and devotion towards. If you said, I'm. I trust my friend. But you don't tell your friend anything. Then the, 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 the sentence is just purely words. It doesn't mean anything. If you really believe that Christ died for you, you're dead to sin and no longer serve sin. If you've, if you, if he, if you've been risen, if he rose again and you're in union with Christ you now live in heavenly places, and you're growing in your hatred of sin, including very, very clear and obvious sins, such as things that are contrary to nature. And listed in that list in First Corinthians chapter six, verses ten and he said be not deceived be not deceived because people will be deceived because they'll think that they can live this way and say that they believe in Christ they don't somebody's a thief Judas was a thief nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners Will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Were, past tense. You've changed. Not just in your standing before God based upon the merits of Christ, but also you have been made a new creature in Christ Jesus, and there will be a change in
0: fruit. Not perfection, but a different direction. Received it. New Testament scholar James Dunn agreed, writing in his book, Jesus Remembered, that, quote, this tradition, we can be entirely competent, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. It's worth taking some time to reflect on what this means. From the very beginning, Christians have believed that Jesus died for our sins and that he was raised from the dead. As people are going through the process of systematically questioning the beliefs they were raised with, It's not uncommon for people to wonder about the nature and purpose of Jesus' death. Did he really die for our sins, or was that merely a later interpretation? Christians have indeed long debated and disagreed about the details and the mechanics of the atonement, how Jesus' death atoned for our sins and reconciled us to God. But the fact of the atonement itself, the reality that we were dead in our sins, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us and for our sins to reconcile us to God.
1: And us being those in Christ. Unfortunately, those people who don't repent, and they're still in their sin.
0: Reconcile us to God. That reality has always been a basic, essential component of the Christian faith. In her book, The Crucifixion, Episcopal theologian Fleming Rutledge writes that it is a grave mistake, quote, to ignore, disparage, or dismiss the clear statement of the New Testament that Jesus died for sin. The connection between the crucifixion... Well, define sin. Name a sin. What is wrong?
1: What sins do we do? And how you determine it because, you know... according to the hermeneutic presented by the Reformation Project it's almost impossible to tell what is actually condemned in the word of God based on such a loose hermeneutic because you can again, you can put any sin in there and use the same logic and just say well, you're damaging me by not affirming my predilection towards
0: well, name whatever ...fixed in the biblical text, she writes And, unless we are to abandon the New Testament witness altogether, we must acknowledge that the overcoming of sin lies at the very heart of the meaning of the crucifixion.
1: Because they want their cake and eat it. They've just abandoned the New Testament and they've abandoned the entire scriptures. Remember, it's the entire scriptures. Um, You don't believe in the New Testament unless you actually believe in the Old Testament. To believe in the New- Old Testament believe- means you believe the New Testament revelation. And the New Testament quotes extensively from the Old Testament, or the New Testament quotes a lot, quite frequently, from Psalms, Isaiah, various other places.
0: So, Jesus died for our sins. The other key belief included in the creedal statement of 1 Corinthians fifteen three through 5 is Jesus' resurrection. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures that you pick and choose and don't believe. This is, of course, the single most important claim of the Christian faith, without which there would be no Christian faith. And it's Paul's primary focus throughout 1 Corinthians 15. So so this is the
1: only thing you have to believe. Just believe in the resurrection. Intellectually, with your mind, that's it. And you live whatever way you like.
0: It doesn't make any difference to the way you live. That's kind of the implication here. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says in verse 17, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, he adds in verse 19, we are of all people most to be pitied. The claim that Jesus died, was buried, and then came back to life on the third day is it should go without saying a radical one. It isn't easy for many people in modern societies to accept, and so there are occasionally attempts to water it down to something easier to swallow, the resurrection as metaphor rather than as literal fact, the imaginative creation of an ancient, pre-scientific people. But while we should certainly have grace for doubt, we cannot abandon the historic Christian belief in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus without effectively abandoning Christianity altogether. The resurrection of Jesus isn't just an idle abstract debate for theologians. What about the creation ordinance? What
1: about the fact that he created male and female? Creation. <laughs> and the way he designed male and female relationships before the fall. And what about those? Does that matter at all? No, just this one thing. Or just Jesus rose. Well, he's the second Adam. So clearly, what happened to creation matters too. Again, this is just a pick and mix form of Christianity... And you can't have your cake and eat it. You believe if you're born again and you 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 repented and trust in Christ, truly trust in Christ. You believe the scriptures. You believe the scriptures. You believe Christ. And if you believe Christ, you believe what it says about marriage. You believe what it says about genders. You know, sex, the two sexes. You believe what it says about that a woman shall not exercise authority over man in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. You believe that anything outside of the, the, the sexual norms described in scriptures is a gross perversion, condemned anywhere where it's mentioned. And if you do not believe the scriptures, then what Jesus do you believe in? It is not the, the Jesus of the scriptures. It is a Jesus according to your own imagination who thinks nothing of your perversion and is happy for you to promote a movement that is at war with the family, which is a war with God's created order and ultimately is at war with God himself
0: that has no real impact on our day-to-day lives. If it really happened, then it is the very hinge point of human history. And it fundamentally transforms our understanding of the world.
1: I'm going to leave it there. I mean, it could... That's up to like 20 minutes and 23 seconds. I probably won't finish it off the next time. The i'm sure the reason why he's doing things like this is he probably sees that well there's no there's nothing that binds them together except for a disgust of christianity and and for for the reformation project to have any reason to exist it it must exist for this reason i.e. changing the church from within a church that is devoid of any semblance of keeping the word of God but must appear outwardly at least to the world and things like that that it actually does um, believe the word of God and you know you're going to notice this notice how the world loves when professing believers People who say that the Christians actually are for this stuff—they they absolutely love it. You'll get it on TV. You'll Google will even give you. Come on, Google. Google is one of the most anti-Christian environments companies out there. Thank you so much for listening in. Probably have another program early next week, but these programs will not be any specific day over the next couple of weeks. Please. Uh, keep the program in your prayers Most, More than anything I'm going to be available for a call for, To a congregation on the 1st of May I appreciate your prayers in that This has been Paul Flynn May God bless you all